The idea of doing a jazz duo record for a couple of young musicians playing guitar and piano is a little bit daunting. But to truly be honest, the record couldn't just be in the tradition of the jazz duo. There was so much thinking about things beyond the jazz tradition, so many stylistic influences to incorporate, so many sonic places to visit. And right from the start, we knew it had to be more than just two people playing together. The idea of making it a duo record was appealing because it was something somewhat uncharted, and we were getting in into this synth thing in ways that were really uh, sort of virgin territory. You know, in 1980, um, you know, it had only been a year or two or two and a half years that you could play chords with uh, with synths at all. And the technology was starting to get really good. There were new instruments like the Oberheim and the, the Prophet 5 that had great sounds. It, w it wasn't a cheesy, kind of crummy sound like some of the, the early string synths and stuff were. These were like really rich, full sounds, and we were doing a lot of stuff using you know early digital delays to spread the sound around, and we were as much about the sonics of it as we were as, uh, about other aspect of it. It was equal to make this sound happen. I think we also wanted to make a record that showed that improvisational thinking could be applied to more than just solos on changes. That one could improvise the form itself, one could improvise all the aspects, the melody, harmony, and rhythm. One could improvise orchestration. One could even improvise the dramatic a sweep of a section, that improvisation was far more versatile than it was often allowed to be. The team that was put together to do this record was the usual ECM crew. Um, of course, Manfred Eicher was the producer. The engineer was our favorite guy and, and still somebody that we love a lot, Jan-Erik Kongshag, who is the Norwegian head of what then was, um, I guess it was still Rainbow Studios at that time. Um, just an incredible engineer and he saw immediately what we were looking for and uh, uh, we always had fun with, with Jan-Erik and uh, that was really true on this record and in fact his voice is even on the record at one point. This is a really odd record in, in a lot of ways on a, on a sort of production, compositional, improvisational sort of process level. It's a very orchestrated record but at the same time we didn't come in with scores of paper with specific notes. It was more like okay we know we're going to do this. We know we want to fill this in this way. And particularly for Lyle, I mean, it really showcases his incredible skills in this area of being able to kind of make up parts. You know, there's some fantastic Lyle orchestration moments here that were improvised, that are fulfilling the kinds of things that, you know, one might spend, you know, six months doing with a with a score paper filling in notes that were kind of done on the fly that make up this interesting hybrid of improvisational thinking and improvisational orchestration 
taking advantage of that X vapor that comes when you do something on the spot that's different than when you think about it for a day or an hour or 20 minutes. It, when you do something right there, you get something. I mean, you, you might lose something else, you might lose a tiny bit of detail, but you get something back when you do something quickly. Music is often described as consisting of melody, harmony, and rhythm. But if you define it as those three plus form, texture, orchestration, drama, a whole host of other things. If you're, if you're looking at music in closer to a ten-dimensional way, your compositional thinking leads to other things besides you know, manipulation of the melody or, or the rhythm. And um, the way orchestration informs the drama and the way form can work with harmony to shape a, a journey is fascinating to me. And one of the devices that filmmakers have available to them is the juxtaposition of opposite elements or incongruous elements or just surprising, unlikely elements. And they can achieve more nuanced uh, and complex results uh, that way. It's a little tough to do it musically. If you've got a certain rhythm going on, you can play against that to a certain extent with the melody, but it's uh, not the same. It's a little easier to do it with orchestration. So you can have one family of aspects of music unified in a certain direction and simultaneously have some other elements of music comment on something completely different or be introducing completely different things. And what happens in the listener's mind, I think, is that the brain tries to make sense of it and can often come up with a very interesting story, far more interesting than whatever we might have had in mind while we were doing it. One thing for me with the band, and this remains true up to right now, is that as you introduce electronic elements, whether they're synths or drum machines or whatever, somehow my instinct is that you have to balance that with something from the natural world. And part of the impulse of getting Nana involved was, was exactly that, is that I knew we were going to be relying on synths a lot for this sort of orchestrational gesture that I think we were both really interested in. And, and, um, and Nana really was sort of the perfect counterpoint to that. And uh, you hear in the, you know, the, the, the kind of mid-going of that first side where there's the drum machine starts, but then there's this whole sort of talking drum answer to it that, uh, you know, Nana just immediately gravitated towards that. And it, and it is, in fact, something that, that just, uh, the, the juxtaposition of the super modern electronic sound with this, you know, ancient sound, I think sets a platform for the synths to really do their thing. And um, that balance has always been important. I mean, I, that later on in the record on side two where we have Nana singing, to me that was another thing that, that actually wound up being the key to us, so that, that then manifested itself in the group over the next, you know, well, the rest of the group's history up until now of having actual air in the band, you know, through somebody singing. And Nana's 
vocalizing throughout this record was our first work in that area. We had a very primitive drum machine at the time. Didn't do much, but uh, Pat had found a pattern that was really catchy. I'm not sure what Nana thought of it, but he did a couple of things that really impressed me. The first pass he did was on shakers, and he had these really rich, deep-sounding shakers that it was just stunning to watch visually, the way he'd get different cross rhythms. His whole body was just shaking with it. And he just did this long pass. Then he went back and did some talking drum stuff that was partially in response to some synth stuff I had recorded and partly just on his own. And it was like a, a second solo during all of these gurgling synth things that had been improvised and layered. There was another voice telling you something that was in a language that none of us spoke that was totally coherent, totally riveting. It had its own thread, its own point of view, its own agenda. Uh, again, I think it, it led to a rich result where y your ear could be drawn down into many aspects of the music. If you just wanted to check out the harmonic morphine of what had been going on, you could. If you wanted to just get specific into all this rhythmic interaction, you could. If you wanted to focus on the extremely narrative quality of the, of the talking drum part, you could. I still don't know what to make of the section. It doesn't sound like anything I had heard before. We had prepared the final section of Wichita all the parts were written out. I'd written out almost an orchestral score, but we didn't know how we were going to get from point B to point C, or point R to point S at this point in the complicated form. But there was a, an electric organ in the studio I'd never seen before that sounded pretty good, and uh, dialed up a sort of quasi-church organ sound and tried improvising some stuff that sounded backwards. I tried to play the organ in such a way with the volume pedal and the movement of notes that it was in between music that was going forward and music that was going backwards. I don't know how successful it was, but the whole approach, by thinking about this technical concept, freed my mind from specific choice of notes and I think there's a certain amorphous quality to that that helps make the emotional transition to the the final sort of set piece of Wichita. It's an organ I'd never played before with a technique I'd never tried. There was a very natural organic build built into the piece. We didn't know exactly how it was going to unfold, you know, like, okay, we're going to have X number of bars of this, X number of bars of this. It was more like general shapes with certain harmonic shifts that were going to happen that were then going to lead up to this build where the bass comes back in. And it really was crying out for a drum part. It needed a backbeat. It needed this stuff. And I asked Nana, I said, can you play the drums? He's like, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a percussionist. But what happened first was where I said, okay, well, I'll go out and play the drums. Um, so I went out there and attempted to, to do, you know, because really it just needed like a very basic backbeat. And I mean, it was awful. It was terrible. 
It wasn't even close. And then Nana heard that and he said, well, okay, wait a minute, I can, I can do better than that at least. So he sat down and actually he played it great. I love what he played right there. That freed me up to play the bass and everything. And I think we did the bass and the drums at the same time, which ended up being the climax of that first part. So after that big climax with the with with the groove and and uh, auto harp chords and the twelve string coming back in and from there to the end of the side was actually a piece that we had come up with and had tried I think once as a way to start the concerts. You know we had used phase dance from the very beginning of the group's history and. By that time we were, you know, three years in and we were like, wow, we should come up with a new way of starting the, the concert. And I remember saying, well, what if we have a piece of music that starts really soft while the audience is still kind of, the concert hasn't really started, but it would be a tape piece that would gradually build and build and build and build until it got to a chord and then we would come out and start playing on top of that. You know, the, you know this was also in the 70s and the early 80s where it's sort of like, Putting on a concert itself was something that was, you know, it was, it was part of what the fun was of the group, is that, you know, jazz guys at that point, you know, would just kind of shuffle out on, on the stage and tune up and start playing Stella or something. You know, it's like one of the things that made us, you know, I think unique is that we really put a lot of thought into the presentation. And that seemed like something that would be cool. And I remember we tried it at Tufts University. We recorded this thing. And in fact, there is a version of that piece. And, and we got my brother to come and play trumpet on it too. And it just did not work at all. It was just people were kind of looking like, what, what, are, you, what are you guys, what was that? What are you doing? And so we abandoned it immediately. But the thing that we had come up with was always cool. And I thought, wow, you know, what can we do with that? And it wound up being perfect for what this duo record was going to be. The end section was all written, designed to be realized with multiple passes of synths, all just playing parts from a score. And to organize the whole thing, I had laid down the, the count, the second count, so that I could follow the score, and when I heard my own voice say three or whatever, I knew that was three seconds, 10, 15, whatever, I just laid down a second count 
prior to recording any of the overdubs. And I was just reading the score, playing the synth parts, being conducted by my track of uh, second indicators. Purely by accident in the mix, Manfred unmuted the track that had my original second count. And the sound of, of my voice saying these numbers mixed with all of that was so bizarre and so perfect. It was one of those happy accidents. That, that was not the button he meant to press. That was not a design deliberate effect. Um, it just happened, and I'm so glad he did it because years later, the only actor royalty I ever got in my life was from a French perfume company that licensed that part of Wichita. I got a little check for acting. The numbers themselves have become a mythological force of their own uh, that we get no end of, of entertainment value from in terms of just the different ways people have described those numbers. I mean, I've gotten letters over the years that range from the hilarious to the just sobering uh, interpretations that people have for what those numbers mean. But there's other things in 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 the piece too. There's, you know, Jan Erik, the Norwegian recording engineer, at one point he's reading the, the newspaper in Norwegian and we thought, wow, that sounds cool. And so we, we added a little bit of that. There's some whistling, that's Nana walking through the studio. Um, and we just, you know, dropped in a little bit of that. But it, it ended up working like gangbusters. When that whole section was finished and built up with all its different parts and its slow-moving corral. There was um, just something missing. It sounded dead. Since we'll do that, since there's no air being moved, there's no rosin, there's just no aspect of the environment that's in the sound. There's just a, a certain deadness there. Pat brought a sound effects record with him and we laid in a couple of things that really worked. And I'm not even sure why they worked. The impulse was to get rid of the deadness of just a bunch of synths layered. And that took it to an unexpected place because each new introduction of a sonic environment with the synth stately steady movement, both elements affected each other and made it a more complex, nebulous, kind of um, thing. It, was, it allowed for multiple storylines to exist. It allowed for people to take the piece at that point to, I, I've heard stories, otherworldly places, other, you know, space travel or time travel. Pe people, for whatever reason, uh, found that combination of things to be very evocative and uh, very stimulating to the imagination. 